<laughs> I got you again. <laughs> I do that purposely. That's because I'm no damn good. Uh, by the way, uh, speaking of uh, people and things being no good, you know there's a rumor around, which I think is ridiculous, that uh, man's best friend is the dog. I mean, you, you've heard this, canard. I mean, anybody who's ever tried to deliver papers at 5.30 in the morning does not necessarily agree with the fact that man's best friend is a dog. Listen, I had an Airedale that pursued me, like, uh, like for three years. Every time I go past this place, and uh, this Airedale come running out, you know, had these big red eyes. And uh, You ever seen Airedales? You know what an Airedale is? That's a mean dog, you know. That's a biggie. And at the time, I was about maybe two, two and a half, three feet tall. And I'm delivering the Chicago Tribune, which is not easy in itself. The Tribune is a mean paper. And I, I uh, had this Elgin bike, and every morning I would go past this house at about 5.20 a.m., and I would try to sneak past. And oh, there was no sneaking past that Airedale. He'd come running out, you know, and bam, wow. And uh, sometimes I got away, sometimes I didn't. But uh, can suffice it to say that more often than not, he got what he wanted, which is a good solid chomp on my lower extremities. Ever been really seriously bitten by a dog? Well, it's an experience. And so I got so that I uh, I did all kinds of stuff to, to, to discourage him, you know, to really get him. And I, I think the best thing I ever did one time was uh, I said, all right, I'll get that crumb. And so uh, the day before, see, I wore these blue jeans. And the day before that I was going out on the route, route, it was a route more often than not, uh, the day before, I, I covered the bottom of my pants, my, my blue jeans, with stickers. You know what was sand burrs? I mean, they're mean little things. I just covered them. I went out and I picked a whole bunch of them. I covered my pants with it. And this dog, of course, he would come out in a gray light of dawn. He comes tearing out, and he chomped his jaws on my ankle. And by the way, I offered it very, that time was one of the few times I offered it uh, temptingly. I stuck it out here. You try this ankle. You didn't even get the left one all the time. Try this one, you know. And he, wow, he got a mouthful of stickers. I mean, and he yelled and he leaped. Well, then there was another thing. Because, you know, I got very good at this, too. I used to time myself. He's, occasionally, he used to spring at me. He'd come flying out of the bushes, make a giant spring. Well, I got so that I could just flick up my left leg, just my foot, my left foot, just at the right moment, and catch him right under the point of the jaw. And flip him, you know what, over tea kettle. And it got to be kind of fun. Then I used to look forward to it. You know, after I got good at it, you know, you looked a few little carom shots. But anybody who thinks that they can trust a dog... And, you know, everybody likes to believe that dogs are, are above temptation. You know, a dog, a real dog. Listen, everybody's got his price. And that includes dogs, turtles, no matter what it is. It's all got their price. Did you hear what happened in Atlanta? Get your music ready in there, Herbert. In Atlanta, uh, Carl Cloud operates a dry-cleaning shop where he has had, quote, more burglaries than I've had. He said, I, I don't know I've had more burglaries than I've got fingers and toes. They just hold me up all the time. So he bought a watchdog. Now, everybody knows that one of the most uh, trustworthy watchdogs is a giant German shepherd, right? Well, he got himself a giant watchdog-trained German shepherd. This is, a, this is a pro. I mean, this is not just a dog that lays under the radiator there and, you know, and... 
and uh, eats the butt ends of hot dogs when you're having dinner. No, this is a pro. I mean, he went out and he got himself a, a, a watchdog-trained German shepherd. Well, everything was great for about two days. Well, the establishment was struck again Wednesday morning. And Cloud figures he was checkmated. The burglars apparently brought along a large female German shepherd. <laughs> Well, there you go. Everybody's got his price. Some guy's price is money. Other guy's price is power. And uh, obviously, German Shepherd's price uh, is a little sex here and there. And all George, or rather all Carl had to say about it, he says, well, they had this, obviously had this female dog with him. He said, I can't tell you, they cleaned me out, and there were them dog tracks all over the place. And there's my big dog named Fang just standing with a smile on his face. <laughs> can't trust nobody. Hey, did you hear about the guy that caught, that collected 15 grand uh, from a TV station? We better watch this here. He collected 15 grand from a TV station uh, out in uh, Boise, Idaho, KTVB. Uh, did you read about that? Yeah, they, they were out there, you know, the local Gabe Pressman with his camera, and uh, they took a picture of this guy as he was being dragged out of his house in the middle of an arrest, but he was jaybird naked. And they, of course, showed it on the 6 o'clock news. And uh, <laughs> he laid it on him. Well, I bet that 15 grand not only pays for his lawsuit, it probably was better than the job he was involved in. You know, at the original time, why they were laying the hand on him, you know? <laughs> I just thought you. Hey, uh, you know, speaking of uh, of exciting moments here, a couple of days ago, you remember when we did the uh, show about uh, about balloons, about the uh, hot air balloon that we made when I was in Boy Scouts? Did you hear about that show? Well, I did a show here a couple of days ago, Herb, about hot air balloons. You know, figuring that this was the only time that the you know the only type of thing uh, that. Well, it was a very rare thing, you know, kids making hot air balloons and letting them up and causing giant forest fires, which is what we did. Actually, not a forest fire. We <laughs> set a couple of buildings on fire. But this guy writes me a note. He says, Shepard, I couldn't believe it. He said, here you are. He said, you know, there's a theory around that uh, great minds work in curiously uh, uh, similar circles. Uh, I mean, really great minds. I mean, we're, we're ignoring uh, guys named Aki and, you know, and Clarence. I'm talking about great minds. And uh, what happens is, uh, you know, here's Newton sitting under a tree. And, uh, you know, Newton, Isaac Newton, he's sitting under a tree. And, and uh, that apple falls on the top of his head. And he says, uh, whatever it is, he says, he didn't holler Eureka. No, that was somebody else that hollered Eureka. But he said uh, in, the, in, uh, in his equivalent uh, terms, he says, I've got it by George. And he figured out gravity. Well, there is a lot of evidence to prove that other guys were sitting around thinking about gravity at the same time, not just Newton. Newton got, he had got a good PR man behind him. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, really, that's all it takes. And honestly does. He's in the right place. If some guy was sitting in, a, in, a, in an Eskimo hut someplace up in, uh, uh, up in Greenland and he thought about uh, uh, 
gravity, say, 500 years before Newton, it wouldn't do him any good. <laughs> I mean, no way. <laughs> so you got to be in the right place at the right time. And uh, Isaac Newton was in the right place at the right time. There were a lot of guys sitting around writing things in those days. And they were looking for anything to write. And, you know, guys like Boswell and all that, they were running in and out and writing stuff down and, uh, you know, and getting it printed up and selling it on the cheap jack press and so on. So he was in the right place. Had he been working out of Bombay, India, no one would have ever heard of him. You know, you've got to be in the right place. So uh, great minds do work together in a curious way. Uh, an idea will sweep the world and everybody will have it at the same time. I'm talking about the really massive intellects. And uh, so this is the way it goes. And the guy says, I was amazed. He said, uh, by George... You were making hot air balloons in your scout troop. He said, it's amazing. Uh, the same thing happened when I was going to school for the summer session, although we had a very different technique. He said it was uh, during the summer. You want to hear how they did it? For any of you out there that want to try a little hanky-panky. Uh, he said, during the summer, he said, I don't remember how exactly the launchings got started. Well, that's the thing with these things. They, they develop spontaneously. It's a spontaneous combustion uh, late in the uh, 18th century, guys began to get tired of messing around with horses. They did, you know. They, they After all, first of all, there was a lot of shoveling involved. And uh, a gentleman, this was an elegant period, the late 17th century, uh, late 18th century, actually, the late 18th century, and these were elegant people at that time. This was the age of elegance. Uh, Louis... All those guys were messing around with that fancy Chippendale furniture and all that. And, of course, here they had horses, right? And uh, that is kind of contradictory. Uh, when you're out shoveling around with the horse and, and then you come in and uh, you're wearing your elegant uh, velvet suit. You've seen pictures of uh, elegant court life of the period. And you've been riding a horse for four hours to get where you're going. You come in kind of gamey. And that is really not uh, elegant. So, naturally, the time was approaching when man had to develop a means of propelling himself without resorting to horses over the ground. So the idea was being paved for the automobile, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the way it started, really. You know, only, only, uh, you, know you, only, you only invent things when you're bugged by, uh, you know, what's around. You don't invent something whenever, when everything's great. You simply don't. Uh, and so the idea of the car became very important to guys. Not a car, but just a conveyance where they could go over the, over the ground without, uh, without messing around with all that shoveling and, and hanging a bag on the front of it so it could eat oats or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, all, you know it's got to be kind of a mess. And, of course, uh, there's other problems with horses. They bite, for example. I, I don't know. You never see this in cowboy movies. You never really do. But anybody who's been around horses long enough, it sometimes only takes maybe eight or nine milliseconds. That's long enough. Let those damn things bite. They, uh, you know, you, you walk up to the front of that. That would be very embarrassing, you know, for Jack Palance after he shot up the silver dollar to go rushing out on the porch and you know, how they leap on their horse. He leaps on the horse, and as he's going past the head of the horse, the horse reaches out and grabs him a mean nip. And he, <laughs> and he falls backward. Well, this is the way horses are. So ultimately, people had to develop the car. That's the way it was. Uh, you know, they had to get away from that horse. They got tired of it. So this is the way the balloon developed, the hot air balloon. And, uh, and I know that in our scout troop, we, we made this balloon just because we had to. 
It was a it was a deep seated urge. You don't you don't ask it. Well, this guy said that it was back when I was going to summer school. See, in the summer session, he said I don't exactly rightly remember how the launchings got started, but it just seemed that summer that it was a better thing to do than the statistics 301. And they said it just seemed it was right. The first hot air balloons were primitive. This is always the way with man. That reminds me. This is W.O.R. speaking of primitive hot air balloons. Uh, this is W.O.R. <laughs> we'll be here for... Hey, listen, Herb. Before we go any further, I have an important announcement. Before we go any further, important announcement. Uh, give me important announcement music. Loud. Loud. Come on, just... Yeah. Listen. Turn your head up, friend. Listen. Important announcement. I will be at Bambergers. These are, in fact, I'll be at two Bambergers stores tomorrow, Wednesday, the 21st. The first one at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Listen carefully. I will be at Bambergers, 3 p.m. this uh, tomorrow afternoon in the book department. That's Bambergers, East Brunswick, New Jersey. That's the one right off of Exit 9 on the Jersey Turnpike. That's 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, and we're going to be there to sign copies of The Ferrari in the Bedroom, my new book, Dodd Mead Book. Incidentally, for those of you who are curious, it's now in its third printing. It's been out about a month, and it's really, you know, going right along. It's at 3 o'clock tomorrow afternoon, Bambergers, East Brunswick, New Jersey. That's exit 9 at the Jersey Turnpike. And then that night, tomorrow night at 7.30, tomorrow night, any of you guys listening in Philadelphia, tomorrow night, 7.30, we'll be in Bambergers in the Cherry Hill Shopping Center on Route 38 in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It's a fantastic shopping center. And uh, we're going to be there right in the middle of the main mall. That's Bambergers, Cherry Hill, tomorrow at 7.30. Now, I'll repeat, tomorrow at 3, we'll be at Bambergers, 3 p.m., in East Brunswick. And then at 7.30 tomorrow night, Bambergers, Cherry Hill Shopping Center, Route 38, Cherry Hill. Now, Thursday... We're going to be in two big Bambergers Thursday. We're going to be at Bambergers in the Garden State Shopping Center. This is Thursday at 3 p.m. Bambergers Garden State Shopping Center in Paramus, New Jersey. That's beautiful Paramus. That's exit 161 off the Garden State Parkway. That's at 3 o'clock Thursday, the 22nd. That's Washington's birthday, right? And uh, at 7.30 that night... The last signing of Ferrari in the Bedroom in the Bamberger chain will be in the Willow Brook Mall in uh, unforgettable Wayne, New Jersey. That's the Willow Brook Mall in Wayne, New Jersey at 7.30 p.m. That's off Route 46. So you got it? 3 o'clock tomorrow in the Monmouth Shopping Center, Bambergers. That No, that, I'm sorry, that would be East Brunswick tomorrow. East Brunswick tomorrow at 3. Uh, 7.30, Cherry Hill Shopping Center, Bambergers. Thursday, 3 p.m., the Garden State Shopping Center, and 7.30 p.m., the Willowbrook Mall. Okay? Ferrari in the bedroom. Anyway, getting back to our problems, which are multiple. Uh, hey, that reminds me. Let's do another spot here. Let's get the House of Chan out of the way. Those of you that are planning a... You know, this is a kind of a winter vacation time. If you're planning to come into the big city... The big exciting city. We'd like to uh, recommend the good Chinese restaurant to you. Uh, it's the House of Chan, very famous uh, restaurant. They've been on uh, Broadway now for 35 years, and for a Chinese restaurant to survive that long in New York, it's got to have 
you know, pretty good uh, wonton soup. So, <laughs> it is. It's, a, it's at uh, 52nd and 7th, which is not uh, hard to find if you're going to a theater. It's right in the middle of all that. Right in the middle of, uh, of Manhattan, 52nd and 7th Avenue, and they're open seven days a week. They have a bar, in case you're worrying about that. And uh, they're open till midnight, which makes it a real nice, rounded operation. Good place to go on a Sunday. Anyway, this guy wrote... Uh, oh, listen to this. If you want to hear a hot air balloon story, and you're a hot air balloon fans, and by the way, don't keep sending me new paper uh, uh, magazine articles about balloonists. Uh, please. Uh, but uh, I appreciate it, but please. Uh, nevertheless, he says, our first hot air balloons were... Rather, by the way, I have no interest whatsoever in full-size hot air balloons. None at all. I am only interested in the man-made... Uh, uh, you might say the drone balloon uh, or the, uh, the unmanned balloon. <laughs> uh, he says, the first hot air balloons that we made were primitive and consisted merely of a plastic laundry bag... Now, get this, a plastic laundry bag with a coat hanger attached to the bottom. A cotton ball soaked in lighter fluid was hooked onto the hanger and was lit. The laundry bag would fill with hot air and lift off. It'll do that. A typical flight of one of these crude devices never went more than a few hundred yards. And that we, you know, we were happy with it. He said we, we got along and everybody enjoyed it, and that was the end of it. But then came Barney. Now, that's just exactly what happened with the automobile. Everybody, everybody was fooling around with it, and then came old Henry. He changed the whole scene, right? I mean, guys were messing around with airplanes for years. And then came Wilbur, followed by Orville. And that changed the whole operation. He said, then came Barney. Just as Watt gave us the steam engine... Edison invented the light bulb. Barney devised the multiple weld hot air balloon. It was a truly significant breakthrough. And it was to us as revolutionary as the splitting of the atom. What Barney did was break through the single laundry bag barrier. Rather than be stuck with one small laundry bag, Barney devised a method to weld many laundry bags into one gigantic hot air balloon. You see what he did? He, in, he increased the scope in one, one swell foop. He took the plastic laundry bags and slipped them down the middle. He then overlapped two of them a couple of inches, and on an ironing board, he welded the ends together with a hot iron. You can do that. The long, then, two long strips of newspaper were placed over and under the overlapped area to keep the plastic from melting onto the iron of the board. That's important, because if you try just with an iron on that plastic, forget it. You're not only going to have to throw away the plastic, forget the iron. Uh, so he put these strips of newspaper. This process was repeated many times until a giant hot air balloon of about 10 feet high and 6 feet wide was completed. The bottom of the balloon was carefully tapered so that a box made of a balsa wood frame could be snugly fitted into it. You follow that? The balsa wood box, or what we affectionately referred to as the fuel cell, had a number of copper wires running through it. Our fuel system, upon each wire, several lighter fluid-drenched cotton balls, 
on each wire. See, there were little wires hanging down. On each wire, there were several balls uh, containing lyre fluid were attached. Now, beneath the instrument box, a flashlight rigged up so that it would shine in two directions was hung to add a little showbiz to the thing and also give it vehicular guide, guidance. <laughs> the entire hot air balloon, complete with accessories, took us about eight hours to build. And if you're going to build one, it says construction took place in Barney's room on the first floor of the dormitory next to the stairwell. Such a location was a natural crossroads of the dormitory. Do you ever live in a dormitory? Well, you know, there's always one place where everybody goes through. And Barney happened to live right on the corner where the store, you know, where all of them came together and right by the stairs. And uh, through Barney and his roommate, Karpovich's doorway, would pass all manner of dorm creature. They all came through Karpovich's and Barney's room at one time or another, from the unrepentant drunks to the timid bookworms. They all marched through. Well, on late Friday afternoons, Barney's room became Hot Air Balloon Central, the Supreme Command Headquarters for planning construction and launching of the hot air balloons. At this time, a large congregation of the aforesaid dorm dwellers would begin to gather in Barney's room to begin the construction work. Only three or four guys actually did any work on the hot air balloon because they were the technicians, they were the experts, but the rest sat around and cheered. Barney, of course, would weld the balloon together carefully with the help of a couple of apprenticed balloonieres who would hold the parts together for him. The fuel cell and the two-way flashlight was built by Karpovich, our technical expert. All the rest of us were merely spectators. Very interested and also provided little money, you know, now and again, or maybe an empty laundry bag when it was needed. It was a great show. As the evening wore on, the beer flowed, and hearty laughter filled the dorm attracting an even larger audience, which overflowed out into the hallway. Now, I know exactly how that is in the dormitory. That's a, this guy's got dorm life down, absolutely. The area became littered with beer cans, pizza cartons, and lost chemistry 206 notes. The ham in me always came out at these galas, and I went nonstop for several hours, telling jokes, stories, so that part of the rabble, that part of the rabble who could hear me above the noise, were, of course, constantly entertained by my cutting wit. Sometimes, well after midnight, the hot air balloon would be completed. Now, everybody really got excited. The balloon was done. It was now time to preheat the balloon. Now, you don't just send the satellite into orbit without first testing it. And you don't launch a hot air balloon without preheating it either, by the way. That's true. The balloon was taken outside the dormitory and was heated by Miller the mechanic with his butane torch. You know, those little blue butane torches. After the balloon was inflated, it was carefully checked for leaks. At least another hour would pass while Barney and Karpovich patched up the leaks, which we found. And they were always there. Finally, somewhere around 3 a.m., launch time would arrive. The balloon was delivered to an empty field about a mile north of campus. Several score of hot air balloon fanatics would come along in various modes of transport, cars, motorcycles, bicycles, skateboards, whatever anybody could get to get out there. Everyone left their vehicles on the road at the end of the field and hoofed it 200 yards to the launch site itself in the middle of the vacant field. Miller the mechanic once again heated up the balloon and lighter fluid was squirted on the cotton balls in the fuel cell as the balloon was beginning slowly to fill up. A number of us held on to the balloon as we could feel it tugging upward with increasing force. 
Just as it seemed like it would yank us all skyward, Karpovich lit up the cotton balls as we let it go on its epic voyage. For a few moments, all of us would be frozen in our spots as we were overwhelmed by the sight of a giant hot air balloon quietly soaring with angelic grace into the heavens as the flames cast an eerie glow on all us earthbound mortals. Suddenly, the silence was broken by a succession of Indian whoops and rebel yells as we made a mad scramble back to the road to follow the balloon, which was now moving, carried by the wind, off in another direction. We hopped into or onto our assorted vehicles as we made off in confused pursuit of the balloon. By this time, the flashlight on the balloon could barely be seen and was hardly distinguishable from the surrounding stars. This baby really went up, couple, maybe two, three, four thousand feet. Everyone had his own idea on where the balloon was headed. Sumner and Smith were too drunk to even see the lines on the road, much less follow the balloon. Barney was going around in circles on his motorcycle, yelling and hollering with excitement. Stanley was hopping down the road on his bicycle, postulating a thesis on balloon location based on wind speed and launch angle. Meanwhile, I was tearing down the streets with my head stuck out the window, screaming to the other lost souls what I thought was the way to the balloon. Now, mind you, this whole scene of madness took place in the middle of a quiet town that was trying to sleep at a very nocturnal hour. Our madcap scientific group spread all over town in search of the elusive balloon. Only rarely would a balloon actually be found. Barney had his can of spray paint ready for such momentous occasions and would mark the landing spot with the sign of our group. U-U-F-F-O-O, which stood for University of Florida Unidentified Flying Objects Organization. It's not bad. Indeed, the local newspaper suddenly and inexplicably became filled with stories of, of sighted UFOs. <laughs> One account quoted, quote, an expert witness who worked at an airport, which of course gave him uh, much expertise, who claimed such flying objects were, quote, and we quote here, they're simply not of this world. They do not behave like any known uh, airborne man-made contrivance. On one occasion, we spray-painted five distinctive luminescent dots on a balloon. A couple of days later, of course, the newspaper had a blaring headline that read, UFO returns with fleet of five. Local citizens terrorized. Each launching was a bit different from the others. Once Karpovich put too much lighter fluid on the cotton balls, and as the balloon rose into the air, the burning fluid dripped towards the ground like bright tracer bullets. Unfortunately, the area was dry and wooded, and we raced about like flunky forest rangers, frantically stomping out flames as they hit the ground. On another occasion, a balloon landed two blocks from the police station. As we reached the impact point, balloon landing site, we were immediately surrounded by half a dozen police cars with yapping police dogs in the back seats. We were afraid that we would be arrested for failure to launch a hot air balloon with the proper license, but the cops seemed amused and laughed about the whole thing. In fact, they told us stories of people calling the police constantly in hysterics because of a, quote, UFO invasion. So it went all summer. In a quiet town, as a quiet town cringed in terror from the UFOs, a bunch of hot air balloon nuts went about the merry business of launching the hot air balloons at 4 o'clock in the morning. After each launching, our exhausted crew would head back to the dormitory lounge to have a, quote, debriefing. 
to discuss the launch. Inevitably, we would get into a discussion about what a waste it was to spend so much time on such a silly project when we had more important matters at hand, such as uh, studying for exams. But as the sun would start to rise in the east and we went to our rooms to catch some shut-eye before the 8 a.m. class, someone would always shout down the hall, Hey, don't forget to show up for the hot air balloon launch tonight. We got 200 bags. <laughs> now, there is a story of true dormitory life. Do you agree? True dormitory life. And that reminds me of... of uh, that reminds me of, of another... I'll have to tell you a story about dormitory life in a, in a dormitory that I was in at Indiana U. Now, dormitory life is a very special kind of life, as you know, Herb. I mean, it, 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 he, he caught it nicely. Well, in, in, uh, in one wing of the dormitory where I was uh, very... I, I was lucky one year. I got the new dorm. You know, we had these real old dorms, and uh, these old dorms had, down at the end of the hall... One pay phone, period. That was the way you called in or called out. You know? and, and there was always one guy would, would uh, t- take the phone at 9 o'clock at night and start carrying on a long, tearful conversation with a girl in South Carolina or someplace. You, you, there's always one guy in, this, in, the, in the dorm doing it. So he said, no way you could get near the phone. Well, so... They put up new dorms. They had some new dorms. And in the, in the new dorms, everybody, you know, it was fantastic. They had in, in every room a phone, one of these little wall phones, see. Well, now, it was connected to a switchboard. You couldn't just dial out of that thing, see. No way, because if, if you, it was connected to a switchboard. And if you picked up the phone, see, uh, it would pop the switchboard down there. And you'd say, well, give me such and such a number. And, uh, of course, then you would automatically get the number, but you'd have to pay for it. They, you know, they added it up, and, you, and every week your, your room was charged, just like your laundry and stuff. So, however, you could dial directly other rooms, except it wasn't very direct. What happened is you would pick up... Well, you, could, you couldn't, you couldn't. You couldn't dial it, actually. I shouldn't say you could dial directly. You could get plugged into another room, but they didn't charge you for that. See, so if you wanted to call uh, Aki down in 302... You'd pick up the phone, and the girl would say, uh, yes. They never say number, but yes. And you'd say, can I have three out two? Oh, all right. And, you know, bleh, bleh. And pretty soon, oh, it's Aki. Hey, Aki, uh, that second problem for the end, uh, the, one, uh, the one that has 2DX over 2DY squared, uh, <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Well... It developed into a difficult situation in this dormitory, unbeknownst to us at the beginning. Well, it began to develop, curiously, this way. Uh, uh, Guys would call up, like a chick on the other side of town, or they'd call up a girl somewhere in in other dormitories, they had these women's dorms, and he'd call up a girl. Now, it went through the switchboard, and he'd have this, this extremely private conversation. I mean, you know, conversation get very private when... When you're going to school and you're dating a girl, you know, you get very, very private. I mean, it can get pretty private, let's put it that way. So, a guy would hang up after about a two and a half hour conversation with this girl. And by God, within maybe a day and a half, he'd be sitting down in the the cafeteria and someone would come up and say, Hey, uh, I hear you're really making a scene with with, uh, Marsha. I said, What do you mean? Marsha? Who, Marsha? Oh, come on, Marsha. You, you know Marsha, Marsha. You know Marsha. 
Oh, man. Whew. What about the other night in the diner, huh? When you met her and you went down to the to the drive-in, huh? <laughs> oh, wow. How the hell did he know, you know? Well, it began to develop within the dormitory that there were little peeking ears that were sitting down there on that switchboard and were dispensing information on various uh, various uh, social members of the dorm's uh, <laughs> roles there, you know? And, and you, you began to really see that you could not do this. You could not have a, a conversation through that switchboard on a secret nature of a, of a private nature and get away with it. So one night, this happened in my, my room. I'm sitting there. It so happens I'm a ham radio operator. You know, there's about five other guys in the dormitories were too. They always are, you know. And uh, I'm sitting there. I says, did you say? I said, I, I made a call last Wednesday. And I, I'll tell you, I swear, I hadn't hung up on the phone when already guys were coming in and telling me about what I was talking about on the phone. It's getting, you know, this is really going to be a drag. And so we're sitting there talking about it. So one guy sitting on the bunk says, hey, I got an idea. I said, what? He said, how about putting in our own phone system? My God. <laughs> you know, great idea, see? It's a fantastic idea. Well, at that point, you know, we all had our ways. And in town, there were about 50 joints, old jo you know, joints that sold uh, surplus equipment of all types. And uh, we went wandered down there one afternoon, and they had a lot of old surplus signal core phones and stuff in one of these places that guys had spotted. You know, they're not much use. And these were actually ones that had dials on them. You, know, you could dial on them, you know, the dial type, see. The pulse dialing and all. And, and they were they were going for about a buck and a half, you know. So we, we sat around and talked about it, and finally <laughs> me and this guy, Jack Miner, decided we were going to put in our own phones. And and we were and he was only two or three windows down from me in the dorm on the same floor. Well, this made it groovy, see, because on the outside of the dorm there was this ivy that hung down. So we very carefully strung a wire out my window, see, and the way we did it is I took this wire, see, so this twisted pair of wire, I had a long long reel of it, and I tied a string on the end, and on the end of the string I tied a rock. So I swung it back and forth with Miner hanging out of his window, and he caught the rock, and he pulled it in, see? And we carefully threaded it in among all the, among all the, uh, the, the ivy, see? And he pulled it in, tucked it in his window, put the window down, and hung the curtain down. You couldn't see it, see? I did the same, strung it under my bed, and I stuck the phone under my bed with a couple of dry cells. And I picked it up. I says, hey, Miner, you there? He says, yeah, you're coming through loud and clear. Great. Well, that was the beginning. Once, and I'd keep it under my bed. Well, once in a while, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd whip the phone out when a couple of guys would say, I want to talk to mine. And I'd pull the phone out. guys said, what the hell is that? I'd say, that's my own phone. And I'd, you know, I'd pick it up. I'd die. We had the bell, too, you know, because it had, it, with, this was built in, you know, that, that little buzzer that they have on a single core phone. So I'd, die, I'd just pick it up and go, Ugh. it would make a slight humming sound under Miner's bunk, at which point Miner would reach down and he would pull his phone out by the wire and he'd say, yeah, what do you want? Well, this, this really got the guys. We could have this phone thing. It was great. So one after the other, guys on our floor began to go down to the surplus Army and Navy joint and buying up old phones. And we would string more wire along under the, <laughs> along under the thing, see? Well, we were sitting there one night. Now, at, uh, after about three months of this, this, uh, this uh, expanding uh, telephone system, 
we realized that we were going to have problems see, because now we got all kinds of guys on the system. So we worked out a code. And the code had to do with if you pick up the phone, so you could you could uh, you could operate the bell. Had the bell by the head, had a push button switch on the side. If you know anything about uh, signal core phones, they have a, a a push in thing to ring. So we worked out a code: two shorts and a long would be minor. Uh, you know, one long would be Shepard. Uh, three sh- uh, three quick dots would be Marovich down the hall and all the way down the line. So each guy had his own code. Well, the trouble with that kind of thing, did you notice what happened with the balloons? You notice what happened with the balloons? They did not leave well enough alone. They started out with little balloons, and, you know, that's the trouble with mankind. He gets the bit in his teeth, and he just doesn't know when to stop. It's just like guys make him, you know, the guy makes the first million. He's not content. He's got to make five million million, you know. So this is what happened. It's always, you can't do anything about it. It's eerie. So we had a great little system. And we were even running it down to the second floor. See, we were on the third floor. We had a few guys even all the way down on the on the ground floor. You know, we're we're expanding, and and uh, well, you know, we were even thinking of, of wiring it up to the next dorm, you know, which was two hundred yards away, and stringing it through the hedges. You know, and all the whole bit. See, well, one day, Miner comes in. He says, "Hey, I got an idea." He says, "Do you know Ira?" And I said, "Ira, Ira, Ira. Yeah, yeah. He works. He's a maintenance guy here." You know, we had a maintenance guy that worked on the dorm. He didn't. He wasn't one of the students. He was a maintenance man. I says, yeah, what about it? He says, you know, I saw Ira the other day downstairs working on a switchboard. And I said, so? So I'll tell you, do you know that down in the basement of the dorm, the terminal junction box for that whole damn switchboard is right up against the hot water heater. All we got to do is get down there one night, open it up, connect a pair of wires to the outside line, and any damn time we want to dial, I said, no kidding. I said, yeah. Well, that night, three of us are down in a basement with flashlights, soldering irons, wire strippers, and we found the two twisted pairs that went up there that were the outside line. They had about ten lines coming in there. We just picked one at random, hooked up a pair of wires, strung it out the basement window, by the way, which ran through a lot of cases and all kinds of, of uh, <laughs> all kinds of cupboards, up the side of the building. We're doing this about two in the morning in the, among the ivy, and we ran it into Miner's room. He was going to be Operation Central. And the way we worked it was any guy could call Miner on our local system and say, Hey, Jack, i got to make an outside call. At which point, Miner would take the wires and hook his, <laughs> hook his, his, uh, his twisted pair onto the outside line. He'd dial a number and it would work. You wouldn't believe it. It works. Well, I want to tell you it was fantastic. We were really having a great time. It was really fantastic. For one whole semester, everything was working great. We had everything popping in and out. We were even thinking, by the way, of having an hour every night when we would uh, clear the the, uh, the the lines of of uh, telephone calls, and we were going to feed music through it. <laughs> Guys get a little loudspeakers. Say, oh yeah, you had two dial switchers. Well, you went all the way. I see. In other words, this is not. There you go. It, it happened at Ithaca too. Well, we had this thing going hot and heavy. 
And one night, I came wandering back from, from uh, in fact, I'll tell you, it was organic chemistry class. I had a late, uh, late night in the lab, you know, doing this lab thing, and I comes wandering back to the dormitory. And sitting down in the basement right there in the entranceway was Miner. I said, how are you, Miner? He says, it's all over. I said, what's all over? He said, they raided us today. He said, I was out of my room. They raided us. I said, who raided us? It's the phone company. They tore it all out. It's gone. My phone is gone. Your phone is gone. Everybody, they followed the wires. They raided the whole damn thing. I said, Miner. They had no right to do that. Those were our phones. Yeah, well, all right, you tell them that. Phone company claims we ran up about $1,200 worth of phone calls. They figured that uh, the phones are not worth that much. So they got the phones, they got the wire, they got the whole damn shooting match. And what's more, you and I have been suspended. So you might as well pack your bags... Get ready to fill out the forms. We can come back to school next semester, Shepard. <laughs> now, that's a, that's a damned honest truth. And I want to tell you, dormitory life of that type, the clandestine... Well, did I tell you about the time that we opened a, uh, a Sub Rosa cafeteria in our dormitory? Uh, it, it, anybody knows, if you live in a dormitory, about 15 times a night, you get hungry. And all that you can get when you want to eat is to go downstairs, and they have these slot machines with uh, with uh, candy bars, you know, you can get the Milky Ways. Well, we had a guy who decided that he was going in business. You know, he laid in a whole stock of Heinz's canned soup in his closet. He laid in a stock of cold cuts. He laid in a stock of... <laughs> Every night, he would have five or six loaves of bread that he'd bring home. He had the hamburger rolls. Uh, he had everything. And at night, he would lay it all out. He would put it out there, and the guys would come in and buy this stuff. And he had a real swinging outfit. Then he decided to move. Because, you know, people began to say, look, I know, you know, cold sandwiches. Uh, you know, you know. Uh, so then he bought himself a couple of hot plates. And, of course, from a hot plate, it was just one step to making hamburgers. Right? Well, a couple of weeks of hamburgers, and they're really going great. And some guy kept coming in and asking him, you know, uh, it'd be kind of great if... Uh, if I could pick myself up maybe a little cheeseburger, maybe uh, how about a how about a pizza? Well, by the end of the semester, this guy had given up entirely going to school. <laughs> he was open every night from seven o'clock until one in the morning, and he had a white apron, and he's you know he's serving away in there. Well, I don't have to tell you how that one ended, but it was kind of great while it lasted. He's a little, oh, what, of course I'll tell you the guy down on the first floor. Do you want to hear about that guy? The guy on the first floor in Lyman Hall. Well, you know, it's kind of nice at that uh, 1 o'clock in the morning to be able to get a little nip of bourbon, right? Well, uh, can I, uh, I... I don't know what I should think. He opened up a bar. The gin, bourbon, had all kinds of liqueurs, and he was down there, a dollar and a half a shot. Of course, uh, <laughs> and, uh, we'd get raided periodically. Our, our, uh, of course, then there was another guy who says, you know what, a guy wants at 1 in the morning is a girl. Well, of course, then that led to... Over WR New York, your station for news as it happens, 710 on your dial. The news in detail on the hour. Lester Smith reporting.